Welcome back to the Fastest Known Podcast. Thank you for joining us virtually. We just concluded two weeks in Europe with our Fastest Known Time of the Year awards over there. And interestingly enough, we are back in the UK today. We're speaking with Andy Blow, the founder of Precision Hydration. And they primarily do testing and electrolyte replacements. And Andy's going to give us some really good, helpful information that might benefit all of us runners. Thank you for joining us, Andy. Thank you for the invite, Buzz. I'm, I'm delighted to be chatting with you guys. And we're also joined by Allison Mercer. Allison is based in Atlanta, Georgia, where she just told us there's normally 1,000% humidity, a poor man's altitude training, as she called it. And Allison tested the products. So she'll be able to give us good feedback. Thanks, Allison. Anything for you, Buzz. All right. Well, indeed, Allison, I should note, is the person who answers your questions. So if you write in and you have an extremely tricky, weird question, she gives you polite, correct answers. And she also does all our social media. So Allison, we really appreciate you a great deal. So Andy, let's what's up here? Obviously, electrolytes a big part of the industry. People sometimes experience terrible cramping get us going what's what's up with electrolytes and what you do well if it's not if it's not too self-indulgent i'll probably just start with talking about myself and why the company started because it's, it's super relevant really and i was an athlete in the uk doing triathlon mainly but doing a bit of a bit of um, long distance running and stuff and I, I was at a reasonable level kind of a national level athlete um, and I, I transitioned out of the short course racing when I was in my late teens, early 20s to start to do Ironman and, and long stuff and found that I had this infuriating experience many times over where I'd go somewhere, race really well in Europe or somewhere cold or cool and then go somewhere hot, anywhere hot and humid and absolutely fall apart. And I ended up in a medical tent a few times at races and really bad symptoms, horrific cramping, very, very ill and just just really never got you know just couldn't get on top of it and i always had this perception it was something to do with sweating because i sweat a lot i have a really high sweat rate but it was a few years into doing this and uh, a friend of mine who's a doctor a guy called dr raj jutley who's a heart surgeon he looked at some photos of me at races with salt marks all over my kit and said i think you're just all the symptoms you're describing and what's happening to you sounds like extreme fluid and electrolyte loss so he he pushed me pretty hard to go to a hospital at the time and have something called a sweat test done where they took a sweat sample from me and measured the electrolyte loss in the sweat the sodium loss in in particular and and sodium loss in sweat is interesting because we all every human being loses sodium in our sweat but the individual variance on that number is extremely high so some people can lose as little as 200 milligrams of sodium in every liter of their sweat. And some people can lose over 2,000 milligrams per liter. So it's kind of a 10 or 11 fold variance. And my oh, Andy, sweat- Andy, let me just, let's just pause there. That's very interesting. So a, a 10 fold difference between different people. And so you, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a sweat test. And so you can be tested. I'm not mean you, one can be tested and learn where you fall on that spectrum. And so you could possibly adjust your replacement based on that test. Absolutely. And that's what happened with me. So Dr. Jutley said he sort of placed the 
uh, a small bet with me, probably the equivalent of like five bucks and said, look, you're going to be off the charts here. And I said, well, you know, okay, let's see. And he was absolutely right. My score, my my average sweat sodium loss whenever I get tested is around 1,800 milligrams a litre, which sometimes we refer to that. You can be you can use it as milligrams a litre or some people like talking millimoles per litre. And I'm usually around 85 to 90 millimoles per litre. And he showed me some data and said, look, the average person loses 40 or 50 millimoles, so like eight or 900 milligrams per litre. You're double, just over double that. And and then then we kind of reverse engineered, okay, well, what am I drinking and what am I taking in in races? And very quickly identified that I was drinking plenty of fluid, it, probably in actual fact too much fluid some of the time because I was seeking to compensate for having a high sweat loss and absolutely nowhere near enough sodium. So so in really crude terms, Dr. Jutley kind of wound the dial up on sodium significantly actually we tempered the amount of fuel i was drinking and for me as an individual it was literally like night and day it was it was a magic bullet it made a huge difference and i could i could then go to a hot hot race and perform at a level that i knew my fitness was compatible with rather than just kind of crumbling and having a horrible experience and so that was that was just fantastic for me as an individual and then for a few years, that information kind of just got parked with me because it just became another thing. You overcome a lot of things as an athlete. You, know, you learn something new, you, you you carry on, you move on. But when I retired from competing as much and was working, coaching athletes and, and working in sports science, supporting athletes, I started to look into doing this sweat test with other athletes because like you've said, Buzz, a lot of people don't know this this kind of, they don't know about this element of physiology. And I thought, well, if it can if it can help me, Maybe there's other people out there that would also be it would also be a bit of a game changer for them. So we started testing a lot of people and and then gradually the business kind of grew out of that quite organically because we were testing people and then when people have been tested, they want to know, okay, I need to replace if I need to replace a bit more electrolyte or whatever, what products can I use? And we ended up producing products because a lot of the products on the market are relatively low strength when it comes to electrolytes. So they're kind of they, they sort of they cater for a small part of the population and maybe people who are doing lighter and shorter events but they're not really heavy duty enough for people who have high sweat rates and high sodium loss and do long hot events well this is interesting so as i mentioned before electrolytes are part of the industry it's part of the sport everyone has heard about them not sure how many people understand them but you have this two-fold aspect is that you don't just supply electrolytes you test first in a sweat test to see what the replacement might be needed for them. And then does that mean after the test, Pearson gets an individual recommendation? Yeah, basically it, it is that. And it's not it's not a re- recommendation, which is it, the recommendation is individualized, but it's not individualized to the, the degree that it needs to be, um, you know, incredibly um, to, to an incredible level of detail it's, it's a bit like being fitted for a t-shirt it's a bit like deciding whether you need a small medium or large or extra large <laughs> and and the way we t- tell people at the moment is look the the industry at the moment just throws a medium at everyone you know and goes that'll do um okay whereas whereas the sort of level of the the level of um granularity if you move to kind of having people who don't really need much electrolyte replacement call them a small up to the xl people like myself that need a lot then as long if you get the people in if you get people in the right bucket 
then often they do a lot better, especially those on the higher end. Those on the lower end can maybe get up, get away with whatever they're doing because their requirements aren't as high, if that makes sense. That's a very good metaphor. I appreciate the small, medium, large XL. Allison, you did this. You took the sweat test, used some of the products. What does this look like to you? It was hard to tell because I, in the summertime, as you mentioned, with the thousand degree humidity, um, you sweat a lot more versus now that it's a lot cooler. I was dealing with ice and snow yesterday in my run to know really how much you're sweating and how much you need the electrolytes. So that was one thing that helped me determine. But based on my sweat test, I sweat a lot because I'm doing a lot of endurance and I tested the, like you say, the marks and everything and had that 1500 range where um, I learned a lot from the sweat test and how I should do things. And one thing that I found that was fascinating, and Andy, I'm sure you can talk about this more, is about needing the electrolytes before, where I wouldn't take a lot before. I would take some during and also after to replenish it. But to build up that base, um, one thing I noticed when I was using the tabs beforehand I didn't need as much water during my run and I felt fine. So I think that was a huge thing I learned. And um, I'm sure you can talk more about it and um, basing your level of what you need for electrolytes based on the the temperature and the sweat test. um, How do you vary with the weather? Yeah, for sure. Well, that that point about um, pre-exercise hydration is a a really big one. And it's the one where we've had a, a lot of success with athletes in terms of an educational point you know getting an educational point across because when when we want the ideal scenario for starting any exercise session is you start normally or well hydrated because you've got a you, your body does a good job of controlling its hydration status you know if you drink a bit more than you need to you wee most of it out, you wee the extra out and if you don't really drink enough you get thirsty and you kind of drink a bit more and get topped up but in in the immediate build-up to training sessions, it's not always things aren't always optimal in the body. And athletes tend to do one of two things: is not really think about it, especially if you're training later in the day. You know, you go to work, you're drinking tea and coffee or whatever. You're not brilliantly hydrated, and you go and kind of muscle out a session after work a little bit on the back foot, and it's not it's not ideal. It, it, you you don't run as well, you don't recover as well afterwards. But but if if people think about their pre-exercise hydration, their immediate reaction is just to neck a load of water and just just guzzle down a few bottles of water or something. And unfortunately, the way the body's physiology works, just drinking lots of water in a small amount of time doesn't really hydrate you very effectively unless you're incredibly dehydrated because you're obviously water, you, you drink the water, it goes down into your stomach, into your intestine where it's absorbed into the bloodstream and the, the level of electrolytes in the blood is very tightly controlled. So if you, if you push too much fluid into the bloodstream too quickly, you dilute the blood down and you basically end up, you, you will end up weighing out and filtering out a lot of that water very quickly and not really absorbing it. And there's lots of data now, particularly in the ultra running world. There's a guy called um, Dr. Stavros Kavoros, who's based, I think he's based in Phoenix now, but he's a Greek um, researcher who looks at hydration in athletes and he's been to the to well to numerous races but specifically the spartathon in greece and measured blood sodium levels of athletes before the start and found that the appreciable percentage i think it was 10 or 15 percent of athletes are already kind of 
hypernatremic, which is where you've diluted your blood sodium levels down before the start because they overconsume water in a bid to be better hydrated. So, so what we recommend with athletes pre-exercise is not to drink lots, but to drink a relatively small quantity of a very strong electrolyte solution, because then what happens is you you absorb that you absorb the sodium in into the bloodstream with the fluids. You it you hold it there, then it, it kind of boosts your blood volume temporarily, and then you get exactly what you've described, Alison, which is like the need to drink a little bit less during that activity because you've you've prehydrated more effectively. Well, let's let's pause at this moment, Andy. That was really helpful. So, as Alison pointed out, so preload a little bit, but be careful on guzzling water because hyponatremia. Uh, you just mentioned that. It's a term that I think has come into the popular vernacular somewhat, but only recently. So for decades, it was drink a gallon of water. I mean, it was just crazy, just phenomenal quantities that I, I'd almost be physically incapable of ingesting. And yet if you read the Forest Service paper or the National Park Service brochure before you walk in the Grand Canyon, it's drink, you know, one liter of water per hour. And it's like, wow. And then as it turns out, people have gone to the hospital with hyponatremia. There are actually more people at races, marathon races, road races, who become disabled from hyponatremia, too much uh, water, not enough sodium, then become dehydrated. So the story, yeah. So the story has become very interesting. So your recommendation is to preload, so to speak, an electrolyte drink before you even start. Yeah. If it's a if it's a session where your hydration status, either you're already a little bit behind before you're starting, so it's kind of a catch up, or if you are if if it's a session like I where you where you're going to push yourself for long enough so that you know an element of dehydration might become impactful. So for me in the UK that's probably that's probably if I'm going to be running for more than 75 minutes and it's relatively hard. Um, it, it, in Atlanta in the summer, it might actually be for a 45-minute or an hour-long run if it's like really is super hot and humid. You know, So it's, it's kind of you, – you wouldn't suggest to people that, oh, every time you go out and exercise, you need to preload. But I think strategically used, it's a good technique. And you can do – interestingly, you can do exactly the reverse immediately post a session as well because – there's a there's a lot of um, papers been published to suggest that the amount of sodium that you can put into a rehydration beverage, the more actively the body will hold onto that fluid, the less urine you produce, and the quicker you get back to normal hydration afterwards. That's very good. I appreciate that. So here is a corollary question. We always talk about sodium, right? Yeah. What about the opposite axion, potassium? There's sort of this potassium sodium balance. Are we should we still just keep talking about sodium, or do we talk about the balance between the two? Yeah, the balance is really critical, but the balance is is pretty well regulated by the body. and And the reason we end up talking about sodium so much with athletes is that sodium is the predominant electrolyte lost in sweat because potassium is the predominant intracellular electrolyte, so most of it's locked in your intracellular fluid stores sweat is drawn from your blood plasma which is part of your extracellular fluid where the predominant electrolyte is sodium so when you measure whenever you measure sweat as we as we do you typically see very high levels of sodium and very small very low levels of potassium 
So even in someone who loses a, a small amount of sodium in their sweat, they'll still lose a far smaller amount of potassium. You know, we're talking like probably one tenth the amount of sodium. So in the, during the duration of an an ex any an exercise bout, even an ultra, it's very hard to sweat enough to put yourself into potassium imbalance. Mm -hmm. um, okay. It, it, it tends to be more if people get into potassium imbalance, it's more a dietary insufficiency over a long period of time or, or um, you know, different medical conditions which cause them to lose potassium or not absorb it very well. But sodium is the big one, which, which you know, it's, it, it's, it's basically we lose when we lose sweat, we predominantly lose sodium. Right. Now, it, that's interesting. So it's based on um, sort of a one to one, a direct ratio between what goes out in the sweat and what you put in your mouth, so to speak. But is it possible? I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Is it possible we're trying to get rid of sodium? <laughs> and that it's a, a helpful thing to discharge sodium. We don't really need to replace it one-to-one. -one. Depends on the so sodium balance in the body. So if at times, you, most of your sodium balance is taken care of with your kidneys. So if you eat a very salty meal and then have the ability to analyze your urine afterwards, you'll typically find that there's a lot, there'll be a lot of sodium in it. And then if you went for even one or two days where you zeroed the sodium in your diet or really cut it out, almost immediately your kidneys would stop kicking out sodium in your urine. So your urinary sodium would drop to zero. Um, there's been plenty of papers to demonstrate this. So if you sodium restrict someone in their diet, they stop peeing out sodium in a, in a desperate bid to conserve it because the body's levels need to be kept within a, a certain uh, bandwidth. With... The sweating, though, is a thermoregulatory response, not a response of the body to regulate electrolytes. So if you get hot and sweat a lot, you're going to lose sodium whether you want to or not. So there is there is an argument that, for I guess, for some people, if the, the average person does a bit of exercise and they sweat out some sodium and they've got a high-sodium diet, that's probably not a bad thing. It probably helps to contribute to bringing them back into a a sort of neutral sodium balance. I would say for the majority of athletes, though, it's the, it's more of a concern of, of dropping into into an acute or a stepwise sodium deficit over a number of days of hard training if they're not getting enough back in the diet. Um, gotcha. That's that's what I used to suffer with during a hard week of training in the summer. One of the symptoms I used to suffer with, and I, I try to educate athletes on all the time, is if you're one of these people that in hot weather after three or four days of hard training, you start, you stand up from the sofa and you get dizzy and you get those kind of head rushes and things like that. That often happens to me when I'm in Atlanta or somewhere like that and I'm not well acclimatized. You know, that can be a sign that your blood volume's dropping because you're losing, you're losing a lot of electrolytes that, that aren't being replaced. And we see it also in athletes who have, because ironically, athletes obviously in general it is a gross generalization but you could say they eat healthier than the average population which often means lower sodium and then you get some athletes who take things to the extreme and they they think low sodium is better so they eat incredibly clean non-processed diet with really low sodium and then actually cause problems with mm. with sodium deficiency that's good well this is very educational andy i hope everyone's enjoying this as much as i am I'm going to ask Allison in a second here for her particular questions, but I'm sorry, you 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 provoke something in me here for my personal story, and I want your thoughts or advice on it. That's right. I've 
had some type of uh, hyponatremia issues in the past where I would be in hot weather, like Grand Canyon, rim to rim to rim, things like that, hot weather. And I was drinking plenty and it was not leaving my stomach. Mm -hmm. I couldn't take it in. And after experiencing, as you did, severe difficulty, right? I'd just do a face plant. I'd get crawled behind a rock in the shade Potassium saved me. I mean, it literally saved me. So I'd take a potassium pill and it was just like, uh, you know, snorting cocaine or something. I just woke up, boom, there I was, let's go. And without that, I'm just lying there in the dirt. And so for me, I haven't done a sweat test, unfortunately, sodium can be detrimental to me and potassium can balance my stomach at least. Maybe it's not in my bloodstream, but at least in my stomach. So how would you speak to that? Well, I, yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, it, I put it in the category often with, with these things where defining the mechanism sometimes it can be really hard but but with athletes the proof of the, of the pudding is in what what works for individuals and sometimes scientific explanations lack be, lag behind the kind of you know basically what happens and if that's a situation that's happened repeatedly for you as in you know you've you've found that this you've got yourself into a problem like that a certain supplementation has really had a dramatically positive effect then the, I, well, not that you're looking for advice but the advice would always be kind of like well that sounds like something that you should carry on with and try and investigate the way the way that i would look into what was going on there would be really interesting to to do a sweat test with you and especially to do one where we can analyze this potassium loss as well as the sodium loss um the the theory there i guess could and i am really sort of spitballing here but one one thing could be that if your sodium losses are quite low in your sweat but your potassium losses and the potassium losses are still likely to be low because there's no there's no one that loses tons of potassium in their sweat but you could just be generally diluting your body down and if you're if you're then getting um low potassium levels as well and that's causing more of a significant detriment then it it's Basically, when you get into a deficiency of something, then you we've all been in a hyperglycemic deficiency where you've kind of run yourself into low blood sugar, and then you have a Snickers bar, and it is exactly it's like you say it's like it's like taking cocaine, or it's just like it sends you to the moon because it was what your body was lacking. So I think it's always you know in, interesting, and and if that the really interesting thing to do would would be to exercise you in a lab where you could get you to sweat for a long time and then look at blood potassium levels as well and see see what's happening there the, the thing about clearing the stomach is definitely interesting because i found exactly the same when i was running in an ironman if i got bloated stomach and the fluid wasn't going down i just had to pop a couple of salt tablets in there and it was like unblocking a drain and it would just everything would start flowing again and and we've seen that with other athletes so we are we are kind of all as ultra distance athletes even though we think we know a fair bit about it we learn more every year we are kind of all test pilots really for this sort of stuff we are all an experiment of one exactly yeah well allison what what's it look like to you my question is how do you balance between having too much not enough trying to overcompensate and then you have the bloated issues and and that yeah. was my thing. I was wondering, you know, when you're sweating so much and you're like, I need this and overdoing it, how do you maintain that balance? 
that's a great question because that's that is the that is the killer question really for most athletes it's like how do i get the sweet spot here because we all know you can underdo fluid and sodium we all know you can overdo fluid and sodium and the first thing i would say is is don't do thing and that's don't copy what your friend does if even if he or she is a really successful athlete because that's what we that's normally the first thing that we do is you talk to someone who's better than you and go okay well he does it or she does it like this so that must be the way and this is individual physiology so don't do that what what i would say is that we we advocate for people going through a process of, of trial and error, organized trial and error with a bit of scientific investigation along the way to get you in the right zone. Because you need to work out as an athlete, I always, if you really want to simplify things for, for endurance, I always say to athletes, you need to understand roughly how many calories or how many grams of carbohydrate you need per hour with for a given intensity and duration. You need to know how much fluid you're going to need and how much um, electrolyte you're going to need. And those three things, the, the calories and carbohydrates, if you want to call it that, one is probably easiest because the variance between people seems to be smaller than in in other areas. And I would say you can read the literature, you can look at what's recommended, and then you can go try different levels and you can kind of dial that in. And it doesn't change whether it's really hot or really cold too much. It changes a bit, but you know, I'm like a... 60 70 grams of carbs an hour guy most of the time and that that just kind of works for me you know that if i can do a little bit more if it's a bit longer and maybe a little bit less if it's shorter but as long as i'm in that zone i'm i can keep going with with the fluid and electrolytes of course that depends on your on your individual physiology how much salt you lose in your sweat how much fluid you lose in your when you sweat but also massively varies with the environmental conditions the clothing that you're wearing the sweat rate and all those so again over over time by say going out and measuring your sweat rate in a few different conditions going for a run weighing yourself before and after trying to you don't want to you're not you're not aiming to start a regime that replaces 100% of what you're losing but if you can appreciate whether you're a one liter an hour sweater or a two liter an hour sweater or whatever you can then play around with different levels of replacement know your get your sweat sodium measurement done so we can you know advise on an approximate level of that and then then basically it's the good old sort of you know trial and error process and taking notes you know in your in your training thing in my strava some of the time and Certainly, in my training diary, I'll I'll write down. Um, I probably just said one of your competitors is Strava like a horrible competitor for you guys. <laughs> so sorry about that. But um, in, fine. In, my, in my training diary, you try and put down on key sessions. It was like drank about this much, ate about you know had about this many milligrams, felt great or felt rubbish or whatever. And it's just kind of iteration, you know, around those numbers and, and zoning them in, and then thinking about thinking about then saying to yourself okay well you you build up a database then of experience of oh it was it was 80 degrees and 80 percent humidity and it was two hours and last time i did this and it kind of didn't work i was a bit bloated it felt like i had loads of fluid sloshing around maybe i drank a bit too much i'll dial it back and i know that's not a very sort of appealingly simple answer but i think it's the reality uh, Andy, that's very good because you're an expert on the topic. And so the reality is we are all an experiment of one. And so just to summarize what you said, while 
there's variance here. What people can intake, the caloric intake per hour doesn't vary a lot. It doesn't vary a lot environmentally. It varies somewhat with your output for sure. But then your fluid intake varies a lot, particularly with the environment dramatically. But then what you want to balance out that fluid, the electrolyte balance varies by a factor of 10 just among individuals. Mm. So your recommendation is to, well, I think do a sweat test. So you get a little bit of a metric to begin with and then track it in your training logs. So precision hydration, which listeners will be in the written show notes. So feel free to look that up. Uh, is based in the UK, but you have an operation based out of Vancouver, so you work in North America. So if someone wanted to work with this, would they start by going to your website and getting a sweat test? Is that the, the ticket? Yeah, definitely. That's that's where most people start the journey. We've got a free sweat test on our website, which is a questionnaire-based quiz, which uses an algorithm that we're, we're always actually working on and refining. But it asks you a bunch of questions and kind of tries to put you into that small, medium, large, extra large bucket that I talked about before and then offers some tips and things. As a development on from that, more recently, we've also got a, a team who are based in, in North America or, or the UK, sports scientists and people with experience that you can book a free call with. So if anyone then wants to kind of discuss an individual question, then you just book a 20 minute zoom call with us um, and you, and and do that and have a, have a conversation. And then going on from there, it's um, it's, it's, and we've got loads of blogs on the website. You can read as well. You know, we've got keyword searching on there. There's probably one about preloading. I can give you guys for the show notes that people could, could have a read of. Um, And beyond that, it's the egg. Then maybe hit us up for a, to find where your local sweat test center is if you really do want to get a proper physical sweat sample taken and, and you know, really take a deep dive into it. Okay. So I can go on your website and I can find my local sweat test location and I can see if I'm really have some issue with my potassium sodium balance, which is what it seems like to me. I'm going to ask you two serious hands-on practical questions. You ready for the first one? Go for it. <laughs> The current thinking from drink a gallon of water per day is now the one-liner drink when thirsty. Do you agree with that? I yes, I I do to a to a point. I don't agree to it as like a panacea for everything all the time. It's it's generally good advice for most humans most of the time because you have pretty good thirst instincts. You know, I don't have to tell my kids when to drink. They sort of you know they drink and they've they've managed to survive four and seven years respectively so far um with with athletes though i think if you just leave it drinking to thirst when you're doing longer or hotter events or if you're someone who has a high sweat rate or loses a lot of sodium the chances of that ending badly are very high and i've seen that enough times now and i've got some uh, i've worked with a lot of elite athletes who have read Dr. Tim Noakes' theories on that kind of swallowed it hook, line, and sinker and gone right. The drink of the thirst is the one for me. There's a great quote from a guy called Alan Hofder who won the Norseman triathlon and he read Noakes' book and he drank to thirst and he won the Norseman triathlon. Um, in and the temperature was just above zero degrees. And then he went to Ironman, Texas and he drank to thirst and he ended up in the medical tent. And, <laughs> and then and then he phoned us then he phoned us up and alan's a lovely guy and he's become a really good friend really humble guy and he sort of said look this is not working for me why and we did lots of investigation turns out he's a relatively salty sweater and 
he and I have now written some blogs and things about that very topic because it's like drink to thirst is really good. And we should, as athletes, we should strive to be pretty instinctive, read the biofeedback from our bodies, listen to it. But if you just said to someone who knows nothing about what it is, if they're going to run rim to rim in Grand Grand Canyon, just said drink when you're thirsty. The first time they start seriously drinking, they're already seriously close to the edge and putting themselves in, in trouble, you know, and so, well, Andy, this is good. I appreciate this. I, I have to now offer my little editorial, which is I agree. I do not think this is good advice. Um, and it's, it's interesting. I kind of went from one end of the spectrum to another, just drink a ton of water to drink when you're thirsty. And I think it's, as you said, it's individual based on the circumstances, but it's also probably somewhere in between. Yeah, we we call it like this all the time, the gray area. You know, everyone loves the black and white and the good answers are always in the gray area, but they don't, they're not sound bites. They're not one liners and drink to thirst is a lovely sound bite, unfortunately. Well, Andy, that's what we do here. It's a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sorry. Hopefully I'm just kidding because we have an expert on the topic with you here. And so thank you for offering us these uh, sound opinions. This is very helpful to our listeners. And again, go to the written show notes, links to your website. You'll provide me with a particular blog post on this. And my last question, well, actually, let me ask um, uh, Allison, if you have anything else you want to ask Andy or anything else you want to offer, Allison. One thing I found the newsletter really fascinating that I get the after taking the sweat test, not only the feedback on my sweat and, and how I should um, I guess not compensate, but how to balance it, but also the newsletter that includes all the blogs I found very informative. And I love to keep up to date. As I tell Buzz all the time, I'm a nerd when it comes to either stats or just how to be a better runner. Um, I found the, the newsletter incredibly fascinating because some newsletters can be very boring and very dry, but I found it very informative. So not only you have the individual blogs but i was a huge fan of the newsletter well that's that's really that's really kind of you to say and i'll i'll give a, sh- a huge shout out to the, the whole team contributes to those but chris and dave who are our communications guys who put those together they spend an untold amount of man hours every single week putting those newsletters together and and it's lovely to hear that that sort of feedback because we occasionally, you know, we get people emailing in to say that they, they really like the newsletters and things, but we, we always try and strike a balance between informative, you know, science-based stuff, but trying to keep it a bit, bit fun and have a bit of personality as well. Cause otherwise it all gets a bit dry. So, right. Good yeah. call. Well, here's my last, here's my last question. This is a tough one. We could, have, we could have a 30-minute podcast on this topic, but we're not going to do that. So let's see what we can do. And that is, has you started your story, Andy, cramping? Ooh, cramping. Eh, we don't want to cramp, do we? And it's bad. I mean, if you get a cramp and people who haven't had it don't really realize it's it, it, it stops you in your tracks. It's remarkably painful. And mostly you can't figure out how it happened. True. So if you fall off a cliff, it's like, oops, shouldn't have done that. Uh, if you sprain your ankle on a rock, oops, shouldn't have done that. But if you cramp, it's like, oops, what did I do wrong? Mm. And so here we go. And as you know, it's on your blog. There's the two theories. The original one, of course, is the dehydration electrolyte yeah. theory. Replace that, which 
you know, has logic to it. It makes sense. And yet it has never been solidly confirmed with statistical evidence. The new one is the neuromuscular theory, as you described, and that is kind of in vogue now, but that actually hasn't been proven either. So what do you got on cramping, Andy? Because this is this is a tough one. Anyone who's had it wants to hear this answer. They do. So I'll, so I'll start with a personal admission that I, I have a strong dog in this fight because my personal bias leans towards the fact that a lot of cramping in long and especially hot endurance events can be precipitated at least by, if not completely caused by electrolyte imbalance. That was, for me, the day I started taking extra sodium in events was the day I stopped cramping in those events, or at least the cramping virtually went away. It's still the same to this very day. And if I want, if I, if I'm going to cramp now, it's going to be in the summer in Florida when I'm unprepared and haven't taken enough electrolytes. It's just for me, it's there's such a such a strong correlation there. I can't explain like like well, no one can. We can't explain the mechan the exact mechanism behind that, but. We survey athletes every year, and actually this is good timing because we just got our survey results back a couple of weeks ago, and we surveyed about 250 athletes last year. And again, this is not peer-reviewed science, but this is we've been building this over years and, and, and doing this survey every year. We ask athletes about their cramping history and what's helped them and what hasn't helped them and stuff. And always between 7 and 8 out of 10, so between about 70 and 80% of respondents say that taking very strong electrolytes during – or before activities which which tended to cause them to cramp is beneficial in terms of either preventing those cramps or at least mitigating them quite a bit. So I can't pretend to sort of to I can't, I can't pretend to to say I know what the mechanism is. I certainly don't. But I think it's one of those areas where the problem we've got in research is we've got this neuromuscular theory of cramping, which I don't I don't poo poo at all. I think that. I've had cramps running down a steep hill when you just overwork your muscles and your thigh locks up because you've just you've just damaged it and you just you know or cramps that happen you know pushing off the wall in the swimming pool and you've not I've been in there training for 30 minutes so I'm not electrolyte depleted you know these things can happen and so there has to be other explanations but I think they overlap and the problem we've got in the research and the evidence around it is that like you said there's these kind of two camps and now what you're getting is people who are pro electrolyte cramping researching it in their own way which is almost guaranteed to kind of add evidence or weight or proof to that argument and the the neuromuscular argument seeks to disprove the the dehydration element you're either in one camp or the other and i kind of wish that we could get out of that and have a bit more open-minded collaboration because when you look at that if, if fatigue is if fatigue and dehydration or electrolyte depletion are the two main causes when we get an athlete five hours into an event who starts cramping, they're probably fatigued and they're probably also, or they at least could be electrolyte depleted. So separating that out, the, the big one that's thrown at the electrolyte theory is that, oh, well, when we measure blood sodium levels uh, in people who are cramping, they're no different to those who weren't, who, so they haven't shown signs of, you know, hyponatremia or whatever. And my retort to that is always the, the body protects blood sodium level really really hard and it will do it at the expense of blood volume so your plasma volume will contract dramatically and you can take a blood sample from someone and see totally normal electrolyte sodium levels but in massively contract uh, contracted blood volume 
And that's never talked about in those things because it's almost like, well, blood sodium is normal. Well, it was, but if a blood volume's massively contracted, then we've lost the net amount of sodium from the body, a huge amount of sodium from the body at that point. Wow. And, and the other the other thing is as well, I've talked to a lot of doctors about this. And if you look out completely outside the field of sport for a moment and look at where other people get cramps, it's a well-known phenomenon in kidney dialysis that when you take people's blood out of their body and di- and put it through a dialysis machine to filter to to um, filter it, they have to they have to manually control the electrolyte levels in the blood, and when they aggressively filter the blood and get the electrolyte levels too low, patients often report leg cramps, muscle cramps at rest and in bed and that sort of thing, which then go away when they dial the filtration off and put the sodium levels back up. Andy, that's uh, that's sharp. I want to really acknowledge and call out that you don't go to the soundbite. You acknowledge the differences that we all have, and you acknowledge that there is the gray areas often where the correct answer might lie. Mm-hmm. I very much appreciate that. That's a, a nuanced response, particularly if I may say so. Here we are in the United States where politically we went black and white. We went either or when and that's, uh, that's a little awkward. And so yeah. I appreciate your scientific approach, which is to don't battle the two theories. Forget that. Let's embrace both and see where the answer might lie. Thank you for that. I think that's a very good attitude to have. I, I trust someone who has an attitude like that. And then you offered a tidbit there that I thought was quite insightful. The body will protect its sodium levels. And so the sodium might look the same. That's because all these other things are happening that are detrimental while the sodium level stays the same. Uh, that's pretty that was, good. That was shown in a paper a few years ago with a, an, a German researcher who was getting fatigue and I think a little bit of cramping as well, but it was mainly fatigue. And she, and she was eating a very low sodium diet and showing up with normal blood sodium levels the whole time. But her whole body sodium depletion was massive so the tissue the levels of sodium in her other tissues apart from her blood was horribly depleted and she was getting overtraining type syndrome like really really struggling and fatigue and restlessness and cramps and then reintroduced even though her sodium levels in her blood were mm-hmm. were reading as normal because when you when you chronically and subtly deplete the body of, of sodium it sort of finds a way because prioritizing sodium in the blood is so important. It finds a way to protect that. So sodium in the blood is often used as kind of surrogate marker for sodium in the body in total, but you can have low total body sodium and relatively normal blood sodium levels. If that sodium depletion has happened over a chronic period of time. And again, that's one of those things which I think is ill appreciated in, and and also to be fair to researchers and people that are like really hard to study. Because most of the time when you do a study, you can't chronically sodium deplete people over weeks. It's not ethical and it's just really difficult to to do. Right. Well, I think there actually is a one-liner on this. You are the salt of the earth. <laughs> by Jesus of Nazareth. So that, that shows that you know, salt really does have this ancient historical prominence. And that at the same time, as I'm sure you would say right off the gate too, it can kill you. I mean, you get hypertension, so to more is not better. This is a great conversation. More is definitely not better. None is definitely not better. So this is yeah. this is good stuff. I like where this is landing. Hmm. 
good hmm. good yeah no and i think your point about the polarization you know in the us or wherever is important because it it strikes at the heart of all of these kind of conversations we have as an athlete and being involved in sports science most of my conversations are around kind of topics of the performance enhancement or trends and things and it's it's like this in every area and you and i touched on it when we briefly spoke the other day and we and i said you know, it's like the barefoot running debate versus cushioned shoes or whatever. Because I was, I read all those books a few years ago and kind of tried out all the all the sh- all the barefoot shoes and all the rest of it. And it's like me really disappointed that I couldn't kind of get on with them. And now I'm back and I'm actually I'm a bit older now and I'm running in my in hockers or ultra boosts and all these things which have got stacks of padding and just find they're brilliant. And and <laughs> but but I wouldn't I wouldn't say to everyone because when I was young and running on the roads i would run in little tiny racing flats that were brilliant and it's just it's like that we don't have to we don't have to have a polarized opinion about everything we can agree that there's a a spectrum in there on most things actually right good point allison's got her tiny racing flats on you got your hokas and and boy i'm adding padding underneath my hokas that definitely dates us three doesn't it well anything uh, to add allison before we let andy go Thank you for your time. And it was very informative. Yeah, no, I've really, really enjoyed chatting with both of you. So thank you for the opportunity. Right. What an excellent perspective. I think we can all benefit from that balanced perspective to figure out, for, figure it out for ourselves while using the available science. And I appreciate your business, Andy, which is two-pronged to test and to analyze and not just sell a product. And people can go on the website and see how to find Andy of Precision Hydration. Thanks again, Andy. No worries. I'll um, catch up with you when I'm next in Boulder, hopefully, Buzz. Please.